come before the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the reminder that we need to take time to be holy. Lord, we've been very busy in the midst of this day with various things. Lord, whether we've encountered ourselves as living our lives holy is doubtful. And Lord, we certainly can't say we've lived in a holy world. Lord, we thank you that we come not only to a holy God, the one who has will, is willing to forgive us and to cleanse us. Come, Lord, to your word tonight, knowing that it will indeed wash us and cleanse us. But Lord, it will remind us of the manner of life we are to live in the light of your holiness. Lord, we realize we cannot endure your holiness at this time. Lord, even if we were to get a slight view of yourself, as Isaiah did, we would be caused to say, woe is me, I am ruined. Lord, we recognize that that holiness is something that you have already provided for us in Christ too. Lord, we are clothed in your sight. More beauty and more wonder than we can think or contemplate for ourselves tonight. Lord, we are made perfect through him. We thank you, Lord, for that covering that makes us acceptable, but also, Lord, makes it so we are able to come before your presence boldly. Lord, knowing that we are forgiven children of God who may indeed ask our petitions of you, Lord, without fear, because you've caused us to call you our Father, to know that your Son mediates your right hand, we know these things because the Holy Spirit abides within us to reveal the truths of God to us. Thank you, Lord, it is he who causes us to call you our Father, knowing what that means. Lord, you are the one who loves us. You are the one who has chosen us. And Lord, you love to hear us pray. Lord, our earthly fathers might have grown tired and weary with us. but You never tire of hearing your children. For that, Lord, we know from your word that you watch over every step and avenue of our lives. You are acquainted with our paths before ever we take one step within them. And Lord, you watch over our ways in a way in which, Lord, we are so grateful for. We realize, Lord, that whatever we face today that we may have slipped or fallen in, Lord, it would have been so much more you had not been with us. And when we slipped and fell, you were there to pick us up and to remind us again that you loved us before the foundation of the world. You loved us while we were yet sinners. And you loved us knowing that we would never be able to live perfectly in this world. Lord, you've loved us with a love that has not given us works to accomplish to please you but grace to be fulfilled in glory. Lord, we thank you for your gifts of love towards us. We pray, Lord, that each of your children this night, as we look at your word, may be encouraged in the gifts of grace that we have been given. And Lord, that we may again have our minds set on a right purpose in our lives, in accordance with your word. Thank you, Lord, it is indeed a light and lamp to our steps. Lord, may it be so this evening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'm going to read from Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. These verses the Apostle Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. The Lord bless his word. We look at these verses tonight. We're looking at overcoming evil with good as an overview for the whole of the passage. We remind ourselves again of the setting from which we are coming from. As Paul has addressed us in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Paul had encouraged the Christians to use the gifts of God in love without hypocrisy by abhorring evil and clinging to the good. First, as he spoke of abhorring evil, Paul had identified the possibility of using gifts that they have been given, gifts given by grace, in a hypocritical manner. These gifts included those which he listed in verses 6 to 8, prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and mercy. And Paul's words now in Romans 12 verse 9 showed us that he had seen evidence of hypocrisy being present amongst Christians. Now, Paul knew hypocrisy to be a sin in the sight of Christ. And he knew this in his own life. He had been a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, they were a group of individuals that Jesus Christ had often spoken against and identified as hypocrites in their actions. They sought to promote their own identity above that of other people. Jesus had said, for instance, in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And again in chapter 23 and verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs that appear to be beautiful outwardly, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. This informed Paul's urging then of Christians to abhor the presence of this evil of hypocrisy, being connected in any way to the love that they demonstrated, the actions of love that they demonstrated, and the gifts that God had given them, gifts of grace. Instead, Christians were to seek other companions for their love, and so we looked at clinging to good. Let love be without hypocrisy, cling to what is good. The phrase cling to what is good with love's, uh, to put together with love's 
companions was Paul's aim, and so he spoke of some of those companions. To enjoy, join this expression of affection with giving to, one's, uh, to one another's needs. Paul encouraged them to be active in their love. Uh, their actions of love to, were to be carried out with diligence. Love was to be stirred up in the fervency of their spirit. This kind of love was also to be phys- would be physically costly, but they were to rejoice in the hope that was joined to their love that they possessed. Tribulation was also inevitable, he said, but through love it would produce the fruit of patience. And they were to feed their love in its activities with the steadfastness of prayer to God, distributing honestly what God provided to meet the needs of others. And this is how Paul encouraged the people in Rome to cling to the good things that love thrives with and provide for others through this. Now as we look at these following verses, Paul speaks to Christians of how they were to be those who were overcoming evil. First, in their relation to persecution, and second, in their reaction toward evil. First, the relation to persecution. Paul has already mentioned in verse 12 the need for patience in tribulation and continued ste- and to continuing steadfastly in prayer. And now he informs the Christians of Rome that they should bless the, those who persecute them rather than curse them. Paul knew that the life he urged believers to live in the preceding verses of the whole of this book would result in their persecution. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Going to happen unavoidable. Paul had experienced this as he preached the gospel throughout the world. And as he preached the gospel, so the persecution spread. And persecution arose in every place where he proclaimed and shared the gospel. And if it didn't arise in the place, it pursued him from other places to those places until it was raised there. So wherever the gospel was preached, Paul faced persecution. You see, persecution of God's children is the natural reaction of the world towards the God it rejects. Paul went preaching God's gospel, and therefore persecution arose. In the light of this, then, Paul knew that those in Rome faced the temptation to curse those that persecuted them. And to understand why Paul instructed those in Rome to bless rather than curse those who persecute them. It is beneficial to refer to the first and the ultimate curse brought into people's lives. It's found in Genesis 3, verses 13 to 15. Genesis 3, 13 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The source of persecution which Christians faced was the curse that divided the seed of the serpent 
from the seed of the promised one through Eve, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Persecution was present because God had put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And as Paul wrote, the promise which accompanied this curse now had been fulfilled through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If Christians in Rome sought to curse those who persecuted them, they would be seeking to add to that curse that God had appointed as sufficient in relation to all mankind's rebellion against him. Further, referring to the impact of the original curse helps us to understand what Paul meant when he instructed the Christians in Rome to bless those who persecuted them. Remember what God said to Eve? To the woman, he said in verse 16 of Genesis 3, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Paul stated that rather than cursing people further, they should bless them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, he says in verse 15. Rejoicing with the mother and her husband, who were blessed with the birth of a healthy child, even when they were persecutors of Christians. Or to weep with the mother whose conception of a child ended with miscarriage and stillbirth without any distinction because she was a persecutor. See, these individuals who persecuted the Christians were born under the same curse as the Christians. The difference between the individuals was the grace of God. And there but for the grace of God, as we often say, would they have been. To weep with a mother who's, uh, sorry. Then, as we look at what God said to Adam, he said to Adam, because you heeded the voice of your wife, you ate of the tree, eaten of the tree from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. The dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Those in Rome, then, were to rejoice when God blessed the persecuting farmer or employer with a bountiful harvest after his hard labor. They also were to bless. They could also weep with the same men when their fields yielded no harvest and they even despaired, the, the master or the persecutor despaired of his life and those of his family because they were born under a curse and they were not to add to that curse or seek to add to that curse. This was further refined as Paul went on in verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. 
Christians were to recognize that those who persecute Christians were born under the same curse, shared the same experience of it as the Christians they persecuted, as they were to sympathize with those who persecuted them. Paul reminds them to rejoice and weep also with their brethren. This isn't just something to be shared with their enemies, it's something to be remembered as a common bond between the believers. Paul instructed Christians they were not to set their minds on high things, for instance, if they had, as if they had the right to curse further those who were already cursed, that they were better than others, that they were more established, that God was on their side in a wrong way to fulfill their actions and their desires rather than his will and his purpose. Rather, they were to come alongside those who were humbled by going through the ongoing effects of sin and bless them with their sympathizing joy and tears. It mirrors Christ's actions in his compassion towards those in need. Heeding the Scripture's instructions, not separating themselves from those who continue to suffer under the curse of sin and death. In this way, Paul encouraged the Christians then to have a relation to their persecutors that blessed them rather than seeking to add to the curse they were already under. To view their persecutors correctly, these people are condemned to an eternity under the wrath of God. You cannot add to that, rather to understand that these people yet can have something else happen in their lives. And that brings us to the reaction towards evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul did not deny the presence of evil evident in the midst of the persecutors' lives. But he knew that no good could come from seeking to overcome evil with more evil. In fact, it would overcome the individual who sought to do that. He wrote in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Rather, Paul wanted those who wrote to, to have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. He doesn't just say believers there. He says all men. Paul was also realistic about this. And he states in verse 18, If it is possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. He knew it wouldn't always be possible to live peaceably. But as much as it depends on the Christian, they were to do so. Now we can remember this and helped in this again by going back to that first curse. And remembering that after the curse, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and they set about living their lives and were born to them two sons, Cain and Abel. And Abel was a peaceable man from what we understand and had no hatred towards his brother and sought to live peaceably. In all that he did, he seemed to live in a manner that pleased, certainly pleased God and if it pleased God, then it must be in line with what we have here before us, but his brother would not be at peace. And so, with his anger against God, Cain killed his brother. As far as it was possible, Abel lived his life peaceably. But it didn't stop the persecution that he faced that ended in his death. 
Taking his instruction further, Paul addresses his readers in verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Let me use another translation to maybe help you understand those words a little clearer. Never taking your own revenge. Beloved, instead, leave room for the wrath of God. Do not avenge yourselves. Do not take your own revenge. Instead, leave room. Give place for wrath, says the New King James. So the translation says, leave room for the wrath of God. By taking up his point, Paul takes also two scriptural texts. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, in which God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And this is part of a song of Moses, in which Moses reminded the people of Israel that the Lord would repay the nations for their sins and rebellions against him. The whole world was under sin, and the whole world would pay for its rebellion as individuals before a holy God, and this was what was contained in the song around these verses. This verse, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then Paul connected to this, sorry, Quotation of this context of Paul's argument, the close of Romans 12, makes it clear then, it would be an evil action for Christians to seek to take their own revenge on those who persecuted them. When God had clearly said that they had defended him as their God, and he would repay their actions with his vengeance. Seeking their own revenge, those in Rome would be seeking to take God's exclusive an ultimate right to take, to take his vengeance away from him. And that's something that none of us should ever seek to do. Rather, Paul used scripture again to affirm good actions that the Christian should do. And he, quote, he says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And these words are quoted from Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22, which are actually Proverbs of Solomon, we're told, that were written down by the men of of King Hezekiah. And they were copied down after the days of Solomon. And they are words then which a following generation valued as words that God would have them use and keep. And this is how Paul uses them. The picture is that these good actions towards an enemy would overcome the evil within the same in in the same manner as a person would seek by inducing heat to drive out fever from a person. You've ever had a a cold or a bug, and someone, your parents may have said to you, or someone said to you, or you just need to sweat it out. That seems to be the picture that's here of heaping these coals, that there would be a vessel placed upon a person's head and you'd put the warm coals upon it and maybe you'd cover it over and the heat from it would try and drive out the the sweat and therefore the fever from their body and they would recover. And what's happening in a persecuted person? Evil has taken hold of them. Evil has so taken hold of them that they're willing to wound and hurt another person, not because they've done anything worthy of that, not done any crime. The Christian hasn't stolen. He hasn't 
committed any sin according with the law, and there's nothing to bring him before the, the law courts with. He is simply believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. He's one who lives a life in line with that and testifies to that. But this individual's persecuting has an evil at work within them, a hatred of God that is originally in their lives, that is brought forth in an action that causes them to wound, to hurt, to burden, to persecute the Christian who is under their authority or near to them. This can be overcome, says Paul. This is to be sought to be overcome with good. Like you would heap coals on someone who is ill to drive out a fever from the midst of them. So it brings us to our exhortation. Do not overcome evil, uh, overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Today, as in the days of Paul, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, persecution accompanies it. That's why there's more persecution in the world today than there has ever been. Because the gospel has been preached in more places than it has ever been preached. And there are more people in the world who have heard the gospel and therefore have sought to drive back God from their societies and communities and seek to drive him back by affecting Christians. The target of persecution is not truly the Christian. The target of persecution is God, the enmity against God. The longer the gospel continues to be proclaimed, the more rebellious the world will become towards it and its persecution of the children of God will intensify. That is a matter of fact. This world is driven by one who hates God, who has enmity between God's seed and his own seed. And that word enmity means to be at a state of war. But Paul's words remind us we cannot overcome evil of persecution by resorting to an evil ourselves. Instead, we are to seek to overcome evil with good. Driving evil from men, as we would drive sickness from a person by increasing their temperature and causing them to sweat it out. We are to bless those who persecute us when we have the opportunity to do so. Now, Paul is not speaking this, as it were, as we would say, out of the top of his head. This is Paul's testimony. This is Paul's own experience. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was one of the first persecutors of the church. He was a man who took men and women away from their children and imprisoned them, and he stood and approved at the point of their death. This is his testimony. This is the Apostle Paul of whom we read of being called Saul in Acts 7, verses 57 to 60. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him, that Stephen, with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You ever wonder how those words end up on the page of Scripture? Stephen doesn't speak them because he's dead. There's a man there who did hear them, wasn't there? Saul heard them. And when a couple of chapters later, in chapter 9 and verse 5, the Lord Jesus appears to him 
we hear Jesus say this to him, uh, sorry, Paul say this to him, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. <coughs> you don't know what goats are, some of you. They're the sticks that men would use to drive their cattle forward. And Paul was being driven to Christ. Everything he'd witnessed in the life of the Christians, the gospel he was being hear hearing, and it was all driving him towards Christ, but he was kicking against this. He was striving against it. But the good overcame in the purpose of God the evil that was in his heart. So when Paul says we are to over bless our persecutors rather than treat them evil, he's thinking of his own testimony in his own life and the goodness of God that he heard proclaimed to him when he was a man who hated Christ as much as he possibly could. And yet God brought about his salvation. And he's not the last one in history to have such a testimony. There are many in history who've had such a testimony. There are boys and girls who at school called their mates names because they went to church. They now regret those things. But because of the good actions of those boys and girls who were Christians at school and towards them, they've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There are men and women in the workplace who have endured much name-calling and uh, difficulty in their work. Some of their colleagues who persecute them have seen in them Christ. Christ has drawn those individuals to himself. There are some who've spent all their life hating Christians, have reached into their 70s, their 80s, their 90s. And by God's grace, the good that was sown, Christ has used to save. Friends, this is not a matter of theory. If we live godly, we're going to be persecuted. But it's also the instruction of Scripture. We are to bless and not curse. These people are under enough. They're under more than you can ever put upon them. They're under the wrath and the vengeance of God. It's his right alone to repay them for all they've done. It's not your right. It was his right to give you all that you deserved. It was his mercy that chose that Jesus Christ should suffer on your behalf. Maybe that God intends this to be part of the testimony of someone who's persecuting you. But it's definite that God intends you to bless those who persecute you and seek to overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by evil yourself. It only ends badly in the midst of that. The Lord bless his word. May he make us mindful of those who tonight, for whom this is not a matter of a Bible study, this is a matter of sitting in a prison cell somewhere. This is a matter of a mother having her husband dragged out of the house today and taken to who knows where because he's a Christian. Let's remember those who face this in a very real way today. We come